Your time right now is 6 o'clock, and welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, December 4th, 2023. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Vincent Hesbrick. In tonight's news... Local unions stage an attempt to nix Act 10. The temporary men's homeless shelter poses some transportation problems. We get a look at local government meetings for the week ahead. And review two films exploring racism in the U.S., now streaming on Netflix. This is Sam Swartz and Vincent Hesprick with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Seven unions representing public workers filed a lawsuit last Thursday in an attempt to repeal Act 10, reports the Associated Press. Act 10 is a Wisconsin law passed in 2011 that effectively bars most collective bargaining for public employees, with the exception of firefighting and law enforcement. The new lawsuit argues that the carve-out for these employees violates the equal protection guarantee in the state constitution. Act 10 has been the subject of several other legal challenges, as well as mass protests and a recall vote for then-Governor Scott Walker. The lawsuit is likely to head to the state Supreme Court and will probably take more than a year to be resolved. Democrats in the Wisconsin Senate have selected Diane Hesselbein from Middleton as the next Senate Minority Leader in a caucus meeting last Friday, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The change comes after the previous Minority Leader, Senator Melissa Agard, announced her plan to run for Dane County Executive last week. Hesselbein will be responsible for choosing committee appointments, negotiating with the Republican leadership, and generally guiding Democratic messaging in the Senate. Hesselbein's position is likely to be important headed into the 2024 season, since every Senate seat may be up for re-election if the Supreme Court decides that the state's electoral maps need to be redrawn. Dane County announced that it plans to stop trying to recover birth costs from births prior to 2020 from fathers who are unmarried and whose children's births were supported by Medicaid, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Prior to 2020, pregnant women who were on Medicaid were required to identify the father of the child or they would lose Medicaid coverage. The fathers would then be required to pay back the cost for the Medicaid coverage. In 2020, Dane County stopped seeking birth cost recovery, citing the stress on young families' finances and racial disparities. However, the county continued to collect money from fathers of births that took place before 2020. Now the county is asking the state to release prior birth recovery cost judgments, mirroring a decision that the Milwaukee County made last month. The Dane County Regional Airport is logging off of the social media platform X. The airport, which sports the handle at MSN Airport and has about 3,500 followers, announced its departure from the social media platform last Friday. The City County Public Health Department has announced the same also in a goodbye tweet. That comes as Dane County Executive Joe Parisi asked all Dane County departments to phase out their use of X by the new year. In his email to department heads, Parisi outlined what he sees as overreaching problems with social media, a vehicle for bullying, fostering addictive tendencies, and causing mental health challenges for adults and especially young adults. But Parisi put the platform formerly known as Twitter in his direct sites, saying that the uptick in hate speech allowed on X sparked his decision. Joe Parisi's personal X account, at Joe has not yet scheduled a goodbye tweet on the platform. A new proposal in the Madison City Council would indicate the pay for council members from $15,000 to $24,000, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Council Vice President Jeanette Figueroa Cole introduced a proposal citing concerns that the low pay for the position meant the council members had to be self-funded, restricting access on who could conceivably serve. 
The move is similar to a proposal introduced in 2022, although that initiative failed to garner the necessary votes since the council needs to pass the pay raise with at least three-quarter majority. The proposal could not go into effect until 2025 following an election of all the city council seats so that the current council cannot give themselves a pay raise. The proposal next heads to the Finance Committee for consideration. Madison School Board members Maya Pearson and Savion Castro have announced their intentions to run for re-election in the 2024 season, reports the Capital Times. The election for the school board will be held next April with a possible primary in February if there are more than two candidates for the seats. In recent years, though, incumbents for Madison School District have mostly run unopposed, with no incumbent facing a challenger since 2020. The Progress Center for Black Women held an event for children to have their picture taken with a black Santa over the weekend at the Madison Children's Museum. More than 1,000 children registered for the free event, which organizers say helps children feel more included in the Santa tradition, reports WKOW. And now, on to today's top stories. Last week, a coalition of Wisconsin unions filed a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of Act 10. The Walker-era law heavily restricts collective bargaining for teachers and other public workers. One union in the lawsuit suggests it could help close hiring gaps for educators. Wisconsin News Connection's Mike Moen has that story. A lawsuit challenging Wisconsin's near-total collective bargaining ban for most public workers is seen as a way to bolster the state's beleaguered educator workforce. A coalition of unions filed their lawsuit last week seeking to overturn Act 10, which places heavy limitations on negotiating rights for public sector unions. The law has been in place for a dozen years and was a major priority for conservative lawmakers. The latest lawsuit comes as Wisconsin, like other states, grapples with teacher shortages. Maddie Toff is a graduate assistant at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who says restoring these rights could make the state an attractive place for future educators and researchers. Having really strong education through academia as well as in public schools is really important for training the next generation, but also recruiting people. Toff is with the Teaching Assistance Association, a union that is among the plaintiffs in the case. The controversial law has been able to stay in place despite past efforts to have it thrown out. A recent report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum notes that the state's teacher turnover rate has climbed from 8% in 2010 to more than 15% in the last school year. Tuff says at the graduate student level, she and her peers are very passionate about what they're studying. She feels not having the right to bargain for extra support erodes at their enthusiasm to carry out a public mission. We have people who have to live with many roommates or don't have enough money to get groceries. She says at UW-Madison, her union is in the midst of a major campaign citing the need for paid leave benefits. As for the lawsuit, it was filed after the Wisconsin Supreme Court flipped to a liberal majority. But legal analysts say it could take some time for it to reach the high court, and there's the possibility the newest liberal justice would recuse herself from the case. Meanwhile, Republican leaders say overturning the law would result in budget harm for schools. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org.
It's now 6.13 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news right here on WORT. summer, the city of Madison redesigned the bus system looking ahead to the bus rapid transit project. With that, residents at a far east side men's shelter now have to walk a quarter of a mile to catch the nearest bus. WORT news producer Faye Parks toured that shelter earlier today. They moved the existing bus stop from the shelter where there's great need. Almost none of those men have cars. The, the main thing is they have to walk a quarter of a mile in winter weather to get to a bus stop when the bus could stop right outside the shelter as it had done previously. I just, the question is, what is the mayor's office thinking? You know, the men are elderly. There's about 280 men and, and women in there at night. While it's true, they do provide a ride to the Beacon in the 600 block of East Main by Blair Street with a charter bus in the morning and at night. That doesn't begin to meet the needs of the men who have to go to various job sites throughout Dane County. That was Mike Roach, a former investigative journalist and a longtime cab driver in the city of Madison. Friends of his stay at Porchlight's Men's Emergency Shelter on the far east side, just across the street from East Town Plaza. Last month, Roach sounded the alarm, pointing out that the city's transit network redesign is putting undue burden on Porchlight's residents. He reached out to numerous city alders and had a conversation with Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, hoping to add the shelter to bus routes once again. She said, we're going to look into this. Thank you for contacting us. We're going we'll, we'll, to talk to Metro, you know, the people who run Madison Metro about this. So these people, you know, they're in the, they're in the loop. Um, you know, everyone knows about this. I've raised this with all the people whose salaries we pay to be professional and provide services to the people of Madison. And I don't, I don't know how this happened, but somebody really dropped the ball. But so far, there's been little movement. This afternoon, I had the chance to tour the emergency shelter. I've just arrived at Porchlight's Men's Emergency Shelter. Located in a bustling area on the east side of town, full of strip malls and larger department stores. The shelter itself looks like it used to be a department store, a sprawling warehouse with no signage. At the moment, the parking lot is practically empty. They won't open up for residents until 5 o'clock tonight. The main entrance is actually located on the side, and one of the employees waved me in. The inside is a big open warehouse space, with dozens of beds lined up, and a few bunk beds placed against the wall. It's mostly empty, with a few workers milling about, bringing in towels, and discussing tonight's operations. Uh, my name is Ferris Ferris, and I'm the manager of the Porchlight Men's Shelter. Right now we're just a drop-in shelter before COVID. We were an emergency shelter, and we were getting federal grants, meaning that as an emergency shelter we had a 90-day limit, which was required by federal law as an emergency shelter. But after COVID, or when COVID started, when I started working here for, it's been now three years, we removed the 90-day limit because we realized that people needed longer access to shelter, and also we were allowed to get federal grants that allowed us to ease that restriction during COVID. So now we don't have any limit on how long someone can stay since COVID started. 
We recently in the winter months have been seeing 280 and up a night. And during the summer months, we see between 200 to 250. This is very different from when I first started working, when COVID just started, where in wintertime and in summertime, the maximum was 187 for the 35 years that Porchlight has been running the men's shelter. About 70 to 80 percent of our clients who stay at the shelter have no active income except for possibly food stamps. The ones who do have income are either from social security checks or they have work. So it's very difficult to try to get people housing, especially in Madison when they don't have an income. But we try to support people as much as we can, get access to services, healthcare, anything that federal grants or county grants can provide us, city grants can provide us. But yeah, I would say the active stay would be, it can range from two weeks. I've seen people come in, get out in two weeks, if they really put in the effort to look for themselves, access services that we have, case management at the shelter, and really follow up and put in the active effort themselves. But sometimes I've seen people who've been here for, sad to say, but longer than 10 years, you know, I've heard that they've been in and out of the shelter for sometimes longer than that. But, you know, in a way we do provide this kind of cozy, secure home facility for those who aren't trying to find housing and they just feel comfortable at the shelter. But we are housing focused, so we would like to motivate people. We would like to support them in order to find housing. But part of trauma-informed care is that you allow people to have the choice what they want for themselves. But I really believe in empowering people to seek and self-actualize through their best self. Many of the folks who work at the shelter are also residents or have lived there in the past. I got the chance to speak with one of them. Uh, my name is Christopher Martin Mackin. I am a case manager for Porchlight. I work out of the DIS now. Case management is here to provide assistance with looking into housing for people, providing services, getting vital records, pretty much everything across the board, assisting in finding employment. I actually did a short time in jail uh, and lost my apartment when I came out. I uh, stayed in hotels for a while while I was looking for a job because I'd also lost my security clearance. And I came to the shelter when I was starting to get low on money. And uh, within about a week, I was a volunteer. And about a month after that, I was the head of volunteers. And then I applied uh, because I thought I owed something back to the shelter. And they thought I would fit best as a case manager. And now I occasionally fill in as manager. Ferris walked me through the day-to-day -day at the shelter, how intake works, and the services they offer. The green doors at 2002 Zaire Road is where we offer our services at the shelter for the men's shelter. The bus arrives. We usually let the disabled guests in first to line up. When it's not too cold, we place seats out for the disabled guests to wait from 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Technically, our guests aren't supposed to arrive till about 4 o'clock because that's around the time when the beacon closes. But, you know, we are kind of flexible on that. And, you know, we make sure to have seats for the disabled guests who are waiting to come in. So then when the beacon bus arrives, they would line up along the side of the building and we'd allow the disabled guests to come in first. Then we would 
allow the Beacon bus guests to come in. They would line up around this area where it's stationed in lines. It's sectioned off in lines. And we have a security check. Mainly we check for drugs, alcohol, drug paraphernalia, and weapons. We also have lockers. We have 150 lockers, even though we serve actively 500 people, you know, who might be in and out of the shelter at once possibly more, but the lockers is where our guests can keep their items as long as they need in these lockers. People experiencing homelessness usually have to, you know, drag around literally their whole house with them, and having lockers really supports them in not having to carry things around with them. And, you know, it might also be a stigma for, like, going to a job interview when you have all your things, and the employer isn't supposed to discriminate, but I've heard stories where they do, like, you know, saying, oh, why do you bring all of your stuff with you, etc. So, you know, we try to have as many services and things that we can provide, like intentionally thinking about how we can support an individual who's experiencing homelessness. These are the bathrooms. So, yeah, we clean them every day. Within two, three hours of, the bath of being open, the bathrooms will be very messy. I've seen people try to flush down all kinds of things and be working at a shelter, you have to have a good plumbing system. <laughs> you know, towels, bottles of alcohol, pipes of different sorts. So it's really important to have a good plumbing system mm -hmm. and our cleaners make sure that it is spotless every single day that our clients come in. So I'm seeing what looks like about 10 sinks um, and a vanity, some mirrors, that kind of thing, hand dryers, and then do you have showers as well? Yep, showers are here on this side, so there are bathroom stalls on this side, three urinals, and we have uh, showers, about uh, six private showers, and then seven open showers. Our food service currently is, can't remember the catering company, I would really like to recommend them. They are cooking through High Point Steakhouse, so they bring us individually catered meals. That's a huge part of our budget, but it's worth it because it's really good meals and we wish to have a kitchen in the permanent shelter that's opening and being built currently by 2025. We will have a kitchen where we will serve possibly two to three meals a day, depending if we're gonna be a night shelter or a 24 seven shelter, depending on the funding that, you know, if we're able to do that. But currently we get about 250 meals a night and we, all, we used to have breakfast, but unfortunately we didn't have that in the budget to offer breakfast anymore. So in the morning we really rely on donations of like granola bars or something, you know, those chewies to offer to our clients in the morning. And we of course still have coffee, you know, it gets people started and joyful to their day. So, you know, we make sure to have coffee but they do get breakfast our client our guests do get breakfast at the day shelters such as the beacon and safe haven that also serve lunch earlier today the marketing and customer service manager with metro transit mick rush told wort that the city of madison researched areas of need before deciding on the bus rapid transit routes but they didn't specifically account for the city's unhoused population he says that there are alternate resources, 
our uh, recommendation to that is that we do have a paratransit service that that would fall into our recommendation and would pick somebody up that is having trouble with accessing the stop and making that walk. So we would encourage people, if they're having that issue, to give us a call and we can help get the uh, eligibility or the uh, determination process set up to uh, try our paratransit service out. He also says access will be much improved when the shelter moves to its new permanent location. So once that moves to their new location in 2024 or 2025 or so, they're going to have extremely good service on our new bus rapid transit route. Ferris says, I would love if we had the city bus like right in front of Zyra Road. That would be blessing for sure. Hearing from uh, general sentiment about the new bus system. Uh, in the beginning, you know, it was very difficult for some of our guests, our clients, to access certain areas that they go to, especially like the Beacon or Safe Haven, our day shelters. But if, if one thing you can say about the clients that we support, you know, a lot of them being out on the streets and having to face trauma on a daily basis are very adaptable, and I think they got used to the new bus system. Porchlight's men's emergency shelter is a temporary solution, while the city moves forward with construction on the permanent shelter on Bartolon Drive, near Rindle Park. It will be the first purpose-built shelter in Madison, and will have the facilities to house up to 250 people. The $22 million project is expected to be complete by the end of 2025. In the meantime, folks in need will continue to stay at the Porchlight Shelter. I think homelessness is increasing everywhere in America. I don't think the powers that be, you know, politicians and such, really address this as a social issue. I think 10 times the amount of money to solve homelessness in all of America has been sent for military funding. So, you know, not to say anything specific to get me in trouble, but, you know, it's, it's like, you know, we could solve homelessness in a day, but, you know, social issues such as this just doesn't suit the capitalist needs of, you know, the elites running <laughs> America. So, unfortunately, you know, we are here at the front lines just trying to uh, give respect and dignity to every human individual that walks through our door and, you know, making our shelter as low barrier and inclusive as possible so that people feel comfortable coming to the shelter. But as I tell everyone, use this as a stepping stone to eventually empower yourself and we will empower you too to improve holistically what you're trying to reach in life as your goals. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. The time now is 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Vince Hesprick. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, which means it's time for a look at what lies ahead in local government. This week on Forward Lookout, Brenda Conkle and producer Dylan Brogan talk jail financing on the county level in an unusual change to filling vacant seats at the city level. Well, here we are again, Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com, and we're talking about what's happening this week in local government. And we'll start with Dane County. Happening now, 5.30, the City County Homeless Issues Committee is meeting. So hello, Brenda. Sorry, I forgot to say that. <laughs> Good evening, Dylan. <laughs> and what's going on with the City County Homeless Issues Committee? 
there's a group of people working on a community plan to prevent and end homelessness. And um, we've taken a look at a lot of the data and we are um, collected a lot of community input over the summer. And we are getting to the point where we're going to be writing up the plan for the next five years. They'll also be taking a look at the car camping report that the county did. Um, Melissa Menig, the staff person who did that, will be coming to present that. And then they'll be looking at what issues they want to work on in their work plan for 2024. And moving on to Tuesday at 530, we have the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. And they're talking about the jail project, which faces uh, another financing issue. Yep, they'll be uh, doing some follow up on that. And then they'll also be talking about... um, it says Dane County Sheriff's Office resident housing and triage location options. I think that refers to having some of the inmates go to other counties and maybe looking at what some other alternatives might be for that. All right, moving on to Wednesday at 3 p.m., we have the Dane County Landfill Number 3 Local Negotiated Agreement Committee. Yeah, um, so they have one agenda item, really, and they'll be talking about the 2024 negotiated agreement for the site. Um, They also will talk about some public engagement as well. Also on Wednesday, we have the Park Commission, which is having a a hybrid meeting. Um, They're going to be meeting at Lake Farms Road, c4lookout.com, if you want to know where they're meeting. But what are they talking about, the Park Commission? They'll be talking about Indian Lake County Park and Halfway Prairie Wildlife Area Draft Master Plan. So they'll be looking at the public comments that they received on that, and then they will be looking at the master plan map and talking about what the next steps will be. And 5.30, also Wednesday, we have a joint meeting of the Environmental, Agricultural, and Natural Resources Committee and the Lakes and Watershed Commission. So why are they getting together? They'll be talking about a couple things jointly, um, the aquatic plant management update for the Yahara Lakes, as well as looking at the quarterly lake levels report. And then they will also be uh, scheduling some joint meetings to talk about the 2024 lake levels report so that they can have a joint meeting on that. The um, ENER, or the Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee, will also be looking at the airport airport joint use agreement um, information request. So um, they've got one extra item on their agenda. 5.30 Wednesday, we have the Board of Public Health for Madison and Dane County. And looks like they're going to be increasing licensing fees on something. Yeah, um, they, they're looking at two different chapters, 45 and 46, where they might be increasing, likely increasing the public health license fees. Um, they also are splitting one of the nurses' positions into, into two half-time positions. Um, there's some grants that they are accepting, and they are um, looking at some budget line transfers, end-of-the-year type of stuff. And then they will also be looking at their strategic plan from 2024 to 2029. And then finally for the county, on Thursday at 9 a.m. at the city-county building, we have the Dane County Broadband Task Force. So what are they talking about? Um, they are looking at amending the 2024 budget. It seems weird to be amending it already, but um, they are looking to amend it to allocate funds for broadband expansion. Um, they are also be getting some uh, updates about uh, and um, meetings that they have had around the county. All right, let's move on to the city of Madison and in progress now with the Landmarks Commission. And anything notable that they're talking about? They will be talking about the West Area Plan. Um, so that's a will impact a huge area of the city. I believe it's around West Town Mall. Um, they also there's a landmark nomination for two 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 nine Eaton Ridge. Um, beyond that, um, there's a whole bunch of demolitions coming up in the West Mifflin, uh, North Fairchild area. They're approving a sign. Oh yes, don't forget approving the sign. <laughs> and then Tuesday we have the Common Council Executive Committee, and that will be followed by a meeting of the full Common Council. So. 
What are Alders up to this week? The first proposal in front of the Common Council Executive Committee is actually sort of having the council give up their power and only if there's a if there's a vacancy on the council, they want the council to nominate two people and let the mayor choose who's going to be the person who gets chosen to fill the vacancy. And then they also are looking at making sure that it does go to election and that they just don't fill it when there's an option. Um, so this is um, introduced by Nazra Wahili. I don't know if there's any support for it because she's she's the only one with her name on it. Yeah, giving power to the mayor isn't something the council normally just hands over. No, seems unusual, but I'm not really sure what happened there. Um, they're also looking at how they introduce business from the floor, um, and they get they're getting some updates. And then what about, yeah, the full Common Council, which convenes at 6.30 Tuesday? Yep. They'll be getting a presentation from Madison's Poet Laureate, um, Angie Trudell, and then that also a resolution honoring her for her work that she's done. whole bunch of uh, alcohol licenses, of course. Um, and then there are they're going to be looking at updates to the comprehensive plan for the city of Madison. They'll be appointing the election inspectors for 2024 and 2025. Uh, Michelle Drea, the city assessor, is up for her five-year confirmation. Um, and then there's a bunch of funding for affordable housing projects. Um, they're, they're moving forward with the men's shelter project. They're approving plans and specifications for that. Um, the urban forestry special charge, as well as a resource recovery special charge, they'll be approving those. And then they will also be... Well, they'll be calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and condemning Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. So just two things that they're also doing. Yeah, some of the, that, those items are sort of hidden at the end of the agenda. So if you're interested in those, I won't be surprised if they move them up to the beginning of the agenda. Um, but they were introduced at the last council meeting, and that's the process and where they end up. So I think that that will be perhaps moved ahead so people can hear what they have to say. Also, um, there is the end of the year resolution where they move all the money around to make sure that the budget actually ends up balancing at the end of the year. They're going to be looking at the transportation demand management ordinance and changing some of the issues there. They will be raising the towing fee charges and they will be allowing the transportation commission to biannually review that and, and uh, make increases as needed. And a whole bunch more things on the agenda. So um, you may want to take a look at this one. It's very long. You can tell during budget season, I think a lot of things sort of got hung up or weren't a priority. And so there's a lot of things on this agenda. And this is the last council meeting of the year. So, you know, they're trying to get things in before the end of the year. All right. Well, Alders were too busy this week. But if you want to see the rest of uh, city agendas and Dane County agendas and what meetings are happening this week, just head on over to forwardlookout.com. Hey, Brenda, thank you so much for keeping us in the know about this. You're welcome. Tomorrow, December 5th, is the anniversary of the AFL-CIO merger in 1955. Feature contributor Harry Richardson outlines the events that led to the merger on this edition of The Past Isn't Past. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Tomorrow, 
December 6 is the anniversary of the merger of the AFL-CIO in 1955. The American Federation of Labor, AFL, had since its founding in 1886 primarily supported the organization of craft unions, skilled workers, usually white males, often to the detriment of industrial workers. Industrial unions were more likely to support unskilled workers, people of color, immigrants, and women. In 1935, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, CIO, originally formed as part of the old AFL under the leadership of the United Mine Workers, UMW, dynamic leader, John L. Lewis. Eight unions were part of the original CIO. In 1936, the CIO launched the most massive organizing campaign in U.S. history in the depths of the Great Depression. The CIO hired African-American organizers to show their commitment to African-American inclusion. They also hired communists and other radicals because they were good organizers and committed to racial justice. The 1935 Wagner Act recognized the legality of unions for the first time in U.S. history and created the mechanism for legal recognition through the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB. While established groups like the NAACP and the Urban League initially took a more neutral, cautious stance toward the CIO, a new group emerged, the National Negro Congress. At their founding convention on February 14, 1936, they had 817 delegates representing nearly 600 organizations with an estimated combined membership of over 1 million. The convention heard A. Philip Randolph, head of the Sleeping Car Porters Union and longtime leader within the AFL, speaking to the new group's purpose. Improve the lives of working class black people primarily through supporting industrial organizing through the new CIO. Major campaigns soon followed in steel, auto, rubber, packing house workers, shipbuilding, communications, and among seamen, warehouse workers, and many others. In March of 1937, the FL kicked out the CIO. In a few years, millions were organized by the CIO. The AFL also grew during the Depression, partly through competing against the CIO, now seeking to organize industrial workers as well. The competition was especially sharp in the aircraft industry, where the United Auto Workers, UAW, CIO, went head-to-head with a former craft union in the AFL, the International Association of Machinists. During World War II, both groups signed no-strike pledges. The CIO made serious efforts, especially in the left-led unions like the UAW, the packing house workers, and the transport workers to suppress hate strikes, to educate membership, and support Roosevelt's tentative efforts to remedy racial discrimination in war industries through the Fair Employment Practice Commission. But the CIO unions didn't work as hard on sex discrimination in wartime industries, which now employed many more women in non-traditional jobs. Some unions, who had long represented women, such as the United Electrical Workers, UE, and the Food and Tobacco Workers, had fairly good records fighting discrimination against women. Others often saw them as merely wartime replacements for the men. After the war in 1946-47, major strikes occurred across all industries and were mostly won by labor. The biggest CIO drive of this period was Operation Dixie in 1946. The effort spanned 12 southern states to raise wages in the South and simultaneously transform conservative regional politics, thereby allowing the trade union agenda to win nationally. The campaign failed miserably because of the CIO's reluctance to confront Jim Crow segregation laws. In 1948, 
1947, the Taft-Hartley law was passed requiring union leaders to sign statements they were not Communist Party members. The law, plus internal CIO divisions over endorsing Henry Wallace's presidential campaign in 1948 and supporting the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe, the commies favored Wallace and opposed the Marshall Plan, led to the expulsion of the more militant unions and some of the union's best organizers. Some of the unions that were expelled were the International Longshoremen and Warehouse Workers Union, the International Union of Mines, Mill, and Smelter Workers, and the Food and Tobacco Workers. By the 1955 merger, with the expulsion of the radicals and the AFL now organizing industrial unions, there was little practical difference between them. The AFL was twice as large as the CIO and was in a better bargaining position. Walter Ruther, head of the CIO and the UAW, failed to achieve merger conditions like guarantees against racial discrimination, constitutional provisions supporting industrial unionism, and internal divisions to clean up corrupt unions. After the merger, A. Philip Randolph and the National Negro Labor Council continued to fight for equality for African Americans in the union movement and American society. But that is a story for another day. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. Your time right now is 6.47 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This summer, the Midwest saw a significant drop in air quality as our neighbor to the north fought severe wildfires. In this edition of VL's Climate Connections, Dr. Anthony Lizawood speaks to some Canadian firefighters who experienced the effects of, fire, of climate change firsthand. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizawitz, and this is Climate Connections. In late May, the Volunteer Fire Department in Upper Tantalan, Nova Scotia, received reports of a brush fire in the heavily wooded Halifax suburb. Station Captain Coljaw and his six-man crew took off for the scene. We could immediately see the large volume of smoke, heavy black and gray smoke. And as we kind of got a little closer, we could finally see the full extent of what we were walking into. The fire quickly expanded into a huge inferno that raged for more than a week, destroying more than 150 homes. It was one of many severe wildfires in eastern Canada this year. Research by the World Weather Attribution Initiative found that climate change more than doubled the risk of the hot, dry conditions that led to the devastation. In Upper Tantalan, career firefighters arrived from across the region to battle the blaze. But in the beginning, it was Ja and his small crew of volunteers dealing with a fast-growing emergency that threatened their community and loved ones. Words will never describe how proud I am of every volunteer firefighter that came out to this. And as global warming causes more extreme fires, volunteers will be on the front lines, fighting to keep their communities safe. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. 
Today on the Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies that portray the struggle for racial justice. Rustin is a feature film on an underappreciated civil rights organizer, and the new documentary and the new documentary, stamped from the beginning, provides, quote, the definitive history of racist ideas in America. We are committed to altering the trajectory of this country towards freedom. That's what's on the line. Nothing less. Lord, I hope and pray they come today. That was clip from the trailer for Rustin, directed by George C. Wolfe, who gave us the extraordinary Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. This is another fine film that will likely receive Oscar nominations. The movie opens with a good montage of stoic, courageous protesters and brutal police. Then we go to a pivotal 1960 meeting where Bayard Rustin, one of the civil rights era's great underappreciated organizers, Coleman Domingo, is trying to convince skeptical civil rights leaders to protest at the upcoming Democratic convention. Rustin wants the Democrats to feel they must support civil rights or they won't get black votes. Rustin was supposed to let A. Philip Randolph, uh, Glenn Terman, take the lead. Randolph is the movement's elder statesman, having led the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and the broader movement for decades. Martin Luther King Jr., Emil Amin, is the rising leader who led the successful Montgomery bus boycott. Among the critics is NAACP head Roy Wilkins, Chris Rock, and Harlem Congressman Adam Clayton Powell in a take-no-prisoners role by Jeffrey Wright. As they are persuaded by Rustin, Powell says that this demonstration would jeopardize the movement's progress. The remark has little impact, but then Powell threatens to give the press the false story that Rustin, who is gay, and King, who is not, are lovers. No one, including King, stands up for Rustin, and the proposal fails. Rustin, who has been King's advisor and friend for several years, tenders his resignation. Rustin is convinced that King will not accept it, but is bitterly disappointed when he does. Congressman Powell, meanwhile, gets a Plum House Committee chairmanship as a seeming reward for derailing a potentially embarrassing protest. A dejected Rustin gets comfort from Anna Baker, Audra McDonald, another great unsung organizer who co-founded the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. Baker appears later when Rustin proposes a march on Washington for jobs and freedom in 1963. By 63, King is a prominent leader and Rustin goes to him to patch things up and get his help. King is pleased to see Rustin and agrees to support the march. This time, Rustin's argument wins. Randolph is the official march leader, but everyone knows the real organizing job is Rustin's. Rustin rounds up a young idealistic crew who work 12-hour days for little reward, sweating the details. Through it all, we see the remarkable life of Rustin. Rustin has always been out to his friends and co-workers, but not to the general public. As the march takes shape, he is outed by right-wing segregationist Senator Strom Thurmond, but this time, King supports him, and Rustin carries on. As Rustin eloquently tells King, On the day that I was born black, I was also born homosexual. They either believe in freedom and justice for all, or they do not. The movie ends with a triumphant march and Dr. King's famous speech, but their story is far from over. As one reviewer noted, they could make seven movies about Rustin. Rustin in his day was a pacifist, a singer, a ludist, and a socialist. This is a fine film with an A-list cast that is worthy of several Oscar nominations. I highly recommend it. Rustin just started streaming on Netflix. Up next, a good doc that would be a worthy double feature to go with Rustin. These stories all about what's wrong with black people. It has so many real social ramifications because of the amount of people who have bought into the myth. 
That was clip from the trailer for Stamped from the Beginning, a new documentary directed by Roger Ross Williams, who gave us the solid documentary The 1619 Project. The film is based on the book of the same name by Ibram X. Kendi. The book and movie title refer to an 1860 speech by future Confederacy President Jefferson Davis. Davis refers to the Bible, declared African Americans inferior and stamped from the beginning or below whites since their creation. The book's subtitle explains its purpose as the definitive history of racist ideas in America. Interestingly, Williams uses women, activists, and scholars to deliver his message because he wanted experts to complement their research with personal antidotes. This works powerfully like when novel Oware Fanon Jeffers discusses the poet Phyllis Wheatley, the first African-American, the first enslaved person to have her book published in 1773. Wheatley was called before a board of all-white men to prove that she wrote the book. Wheatley convinced them. Jeffers concluded, every black woman has a Phyllis Wheatley moment. Dirac also includes Angela Davis, activist Brittany Packnett, Cunningham, scholar Jennifer Morgan, and activist influencer Lene Vani. The director explained he did the documentary because Kendi was the most censored author in America, but you can't ban Netflix. It's in every home. Stamped from the beginning. Just started streaming, and it's well worth watching. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan, Wisconsin News Connections Mike Moen, Dr. Dr. Anthony Lizowitz of Yale's Climate Connections, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered this show, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Vincent Hesbrick. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.